When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. This is the third episode of Let It Roll, and I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Before we start, I need to plug our website, letitrollpodcast.com, where you can access the YouTube and Spotify playlists we've curated so that you can hear the music we've been discussing. In this episode, we'll be talking to rock and roll historian Ed Ward about the period when rock and roll really got started. We'll learn about the woman who discovered Elvis Presley and her eccentric boss, a pair of Jewish music fans who became legit rhythm and blues legends, and how a Turkish record mogul wrote Ray Charles's first hit, and the time period when country music discovered cheating songs. We'll also be talking a whole lot about dirty, nasty rhythm and blues records that white teenagers couldn't get enough of. But it's not all fun and games. We'll be following the music through some morbid and strange turns as we discuss two promising talents who were ruined by car wrecks, the singer who confessed to murder on record before he committed it, and a hit song about a funeral. So pop in those earbuds and listen up. Time of the early 50s, R&B is in a stylistic watershed. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, we're going from two old forms to some new forms in terms of how the um, songs are presented. In the old forms, we have blues, um, which has just gotten a little more sophisticated. There's there's the kind of urban blues from the big band era. You have, you know, like uh, uh, Jimmy Witherspoon and... Uh, shouters like that and and in the early days of rock and roll people like Wynoni Harris, uh, Charles Brown, um, Amos Milburn, people like that and that is in the process of of turning into something else. In terms of vocal groups you have these very sophisticated, very genteel people like the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers who are suddenly turning, not suddenly, but gradually turning a little more wild. And this is about the period when that started to happen. So it's an exciting time, and it makes for great listening. And um, you talk about the early vocal groups, you know, groups like the Orioles, the Ravens, and Billy Ward and the Dominoes. Right. Now, that that is part of the new breed, because Billy Ward and the Dominoes had as a lead singer... Um, Clyde McFadder, and Clyde came out of the church, and so his singing is not at all straight, 
the way the Mills Brothers, well, of course, gospel back in the days of the Mills Brothers was also pretty sedate, but it got wilder. And, and, and you know, Clyde McFadder was right out of that. I mean, you have a song like The Bells, which is psychotic. It is, um, and you can hear a gospel version of that with the Mighty Clouds of Joy later on in the 60s. It's even more psychotic. I mean, it's all about burying your girlfriend in the original version. And the Mighty Clouds of Joy, of course, is burying your mother. But um, Clyde just loses and he screams and he weeps. It must have been really amazing to see that on stage. It certainly is hard to listen to it over and over again. I, I can't believe it got much in the way of airplay, but apparently it did. Yeah, it charted well. And, you know, for somebody who's new to this stuff, you're talking about Clyde McFadder. Later on, that group's going to feature the great Jackie Wilson on vocals. Why is it called Billy Ward and the Dominoes? Because he held, he was the employer, and he held the union contract, and he was connected. He got them gigs in Las Vegas, um, and he got them he got them supper club gigs, and that was what he really wanted to do. Although you know, having a teen idol you could trot up for a few numbers. Uh, helped sell records, and, and the records were exclusively of that sort because the kind of stuff that Billy Ward liked to do was Mills Brothers stuff. So he, he was pragmatic enough to notice that um, what sold, but also he was um, still a part of the old guard. And Clyde very much wasn't, but Billy's control of the band, or the group, not a band, that cost him Clyde. Yeah. Yeah, um, he, uh, well, there's the famous story of Ahmed Erdogan uh, going up to the Apollo and uh, seeing Billy Ward and the Dominoes and somebody else was singing lead and he went backstage uh, after the set and he asked Billy Ward, he said, what, what happened to Clyde? And he says, I fired his ass. And, you know, I mean, Clyde McFadder was a really unstable person. He was an alcoholic. He had some weird thing with his dad that I, I've never really known much about but um anyway Amit hopped in a cab and went to harlem or went up even further uptown to where clyde lived and uh, offered to buy him dinner and uh, have a little talk so atlantic scored a, a solo artist out of that well first they scored the drifters out of that they built a group around well it. yeah that's true um and those were the thrasher wonders uh, another former gospel group i mean Amit, nobody at atlantic really liked group uh, sounds, but they weren't doing well enough to be able to uh, say no, and and so they um, they they figured well, you know, if, if a group fronted by Clyde McFadder can sell records, then let's let's give him a gospel group, not the Mills Brothers, to back him up, and that you know propelled them into the stratosphere. And they go right off, off the bat with Money Honey, which Elvis Slater covers. Why is Money Honey not the first rock and roll song? It's just, it's another um, rhythm and blues group vocal song. I, I mean, why is it, why is anything the first rock and roll song or not? You know, I, I have been applying that largely to the musical content um, and largely to the beat because there is a, an approach to the beat that continues um, right through, you know, people who are only marginal, like electric light orchestra or, or, you know, pavement. It's just, it is a way of keeping the beat that's more metronomic than swing. 
and so that is why it's not the first rock and roll record, nor is Hound Dog. And another thing to me that strikes me as weird, it's it's unfortunate that McFadder's fate was to be in two bands. He didn't control the groups. He didn't control the name of first the Dominoes and then the Drifters, which he it's originally Clyde McFadder and the Drifters and then the Drifters featuring Clyde McFadder. Then he gets drafted and it's just the Drifters. And then this is one of the real cruelty, cruel ironies of fate. There's a second Drifters with Benny King right. that goes on to great, even more popular success. And it's well, almost like it's erased the history of the original Drifters. Yeah, well, that's, once again, a guy owned the name. And, and his name was George Treadwell, and, and he was the manager. And when the McFadderless Drifters weren't doing too well, he fired them, all of them. And hired some new ones and, and found this guy who he called Benny King and had him front the thing. And, you know, Clyde got out of the Army and, and uh, looked around and eventually got a, a deal with, I believe, Mercury. And I think it was MGM. MGM. But he has a run on Atlantic first and does some real, really, I mean, he gets, he's the first guy to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, both as a group member and as a solo performer. And his solo stuff is really worth checking out. Um, A Lover's Question being the big hit that he had in the late 50s. And, and some people say he was the inspiration, not only, he's the obvious inspiration for Smokey Robinson and Jackie Wilson and their vocal styles, but that he was uh, sort of a guiding light for Sam Cooke as he refined his R&B into a pop. That's an interesting thought. I, I'm not at all certain that that is the case or that Sam would, I mean, Sam would probably agree just because he likes to be agreeable. <laughs> but um, I don't, I don't, well, we can't ask him. So yeah, it's, that's a theory. <laughs> yeah, it's a theory. And so, but there was a lot of other things going on around this time, not only big changes in the vocal group sound, but you had this sort of nascent scene in Memphis with a lot of young bloods coming up. B.B. King that we've already talked about, Johnny Ace that we've talked about a little bit. And they start getting in touch with this eccentric white guy named Sam Phillips. Right. Who's built a studio. Yeah, because he knew that there was no recording studio in Memphis that was any good at all. And he was a complete nerd about electronics. Um, His first love was radio when he came out of the service, but uh, he knew that uh, he knew about acoustics and, and he knew about equipment. He knew what was the latest stuff. And so he, he built a, a world-class studio um, in, in Memphis and, you know, you, they came, you know, you build it and they will come and boy, did they ever. Yeah. And he, he was, I mean, he got his first artist when he hadn't even, you know, put in the walls. Joe, Joe Hill Lewis, the one man band, came by and said, well, we sure need that. And sure enough, one of the first guys through the door, when the door opened, it was him. And, you know, Sam sometimes is seen or painted in a cynical light because of his his early quote before he discovered all this. Supposedly, his quote, I don't know if it's apocryphal or real, but he said, if I could find a white guy who could sing black, I'd make a billion dollars. If I could find a, a white boy with the colored sound and feel, I'd make a billion dollars. That's the best I've been able to track that quote down. And he said it to Marion Keisker, who was the other person who was always there at, at a Memphis recording uh, service. And she plays a big role in the story. And you tell how the Bahari brothers that we've talked about were the first people a young Elvis Presley approached, and they sent him to Sun Studio. Maybe. We don't know. What we do know is, is that Lester Bahari was... Uh, given the opportunity to open a studio in Memphis because he was a pain to the rest of the family in Los Angeles. 
and they just they wanted to get rid of him in a way where he could also contribute. They were getting all this material from Memphis, and um, so they uh, told him to go down there and uh, and find Elmore James. And he did, and he got the got them a hit on Elmore James, and then he didn't do anything else. <laughs> he was he's a lazy guy. Now whether he went, whether Elvis went to the Meteor Studios, because uh, he was Meteor Records, um, and was told to go elsewhere or not. Nobody's been able to confirm or deny that. Lester is long gone. Um, Joe is too. Well, not long gone. Joe died just a couple of years ago. Well, one thing we do know is that Marion Kessler had her ears on when Elvis Presley came to the studio, and for reasons she could never explain, started tape. He was cutting a little yeah. demo that he was paying for. And for an extra, I don't know, dollar or two, you could you could get a tape copy too. And um, Mrs. Keisker heard something in his voice and slipped on the tape after he'd started singing, just as a sample that she wanted to play for Sam. And uh, that was the break. I mean, they certainly held on to it long enough, but Sam was very specific about what he wanted to do with artists. And when he heard this, he thought, ah, he's a ballad singer. I got to find the right ballad for him. And he was completely wrong. Oh, he wasn't completely wrong. Elvis was a great ballad singer, but that wasn't what propelled him onto the national scene. Yeah, and we'll come come back to Elvis. A couple people I wanted to talk to that you, that you talk in the book uh, that didn't have the enormous breaks that Elvis did, Percy Mayfield was a, a singer-songwriter, African-American singer-songwriter around this time, had a, a hit with Please Send Me Someone to Love, which is a really interesting song. It's way more harmonically advanced than most of the R&B around this yeah. time. Yeah, he was an amazing songwriter, and that you, you can come up with you know something like that. It's, it's essentially a jazz song in terms of the, the changes, and um, they called him a blues singer, but he wasn't. He, he was... He was sort of like one step beyond Nat King Cole in terms of sophisticated black pop. And um, he was also incredibly handsome, and he knew it. And he had this automobile accident that put a dent in his face. And he, he couldn't face the public after that. He, he would have been a superstar had he been able to make himself go out on the road and perform but he preferred to do things that could keep him in the studio, write songs. He, he was eventually, for many years, he was on contract, under contract to uh, Tangerine Music, which was Ray Charles's uh, song publishing company. And he also provided a lot of um, material to Ray Charles, including Hit the Road Jack. Yeah, and so a huge career, but it really fascinates me to think of what could have been in the hand of fate and also the role of high-risk you know, spending all your time in a car touring and performing, which is a high risk for all the people we're going to be talking about. Another guy whose fate was marred by automobiles was Jesse Belvin, who's a kind of a obscure Los Angeles R&B guy. He wrote Earth Angel and then dies in a car wreck. And, right. But he also made a bunch of records himself and um, with um, uh, young Jesse also, another fairly obscure um guy on that scene. Uh, this was modern recording in Los Angeles, uh, local talent from the stroll from Central Avenue. Yeah, and so um, 
moving around, just kind of hopping around through the period, the Moonglows were another vocal group we haven't touched on, uh, had a big hit out of Chicago with a guy named Harvey Fuqua. Is that the same guy that was a Motown songwriter later on? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The the Moonglows had a whole bunch of... uh, ripples around them. They were actually, they they were not from Chicago. I've recently found out they're from Cleveland, which was what made it so easy for Alan Freed to discover them. They heard that here, here was this crazy white guy playing the stuff late at night on the radio, and they just went by and auditioned for him. Now, he gave it over to Chess, which was in Chicago, and in fact, they recorded over there. But um, they were actually from Cleveland. Hmm. Interesting little bit of trivia I did not know. And then uh, I was going to make the connection to Detroit because Fuqua later goes to Detroit and writes for Motown. But one guy that you mentioned but don't spend a lot of time on is this very weird cat, Johnny Ray. Yeah, he he is a complete anomaly. And uh, I've never been able to figure out what his appeal is. I mean, I, his big hit was Cry, which, which was... Um, really emotional and he would break down crying when he performed it but he was also this gay white guy who wore two hearing aids um he was you know disabled and it's amazing he was able to sing as well as he did but he and for some reason he was a huge hit uh, at the flame show bar which was the number one black showcase in detroit you know that that's that's where ruth brown was discovered. It's where a lot of people were discovered. Um, it was, you know, it, it was the equivalent to the uh, the twenty grand later in the sixties. Just, you know, if you made it there, there you were, the king of Detroit. Yeah, and and he goes on to have. He only has a few pop hits, like the little cloud that cried. I think is is the second. Yeah, one. that's even worse than cry. And it's uh, and I've seen some movie footage uh, of him. And he's a very strange, off-putting cat, but he was the biggest thing between Frank Sinatra and Elvis. And yeah. the teeny bopper riots were going on around this guy. Yeah. And he does introduce a lot of gospel and R&B elements into his pop. Yeah. Compared to Frank Sinatra, you know, he can be seen as a bridge, but... But, but he, he's, you know, he's working for a black audience, so of course he's going to do that. But he brings it to the white kids yeah. in a big way. Yeah, because he's white, and you see him on television, and... Yeah. Although I don't know if he was on television always remember there was very little of this kind of music available for people to see there could actually have been a local show yeah um that he was featured on because he was selling nationally yeah he's just a fascinating figure he's a lot like al jolson to me in that i know he was a big deal at the time and al jolson was obviously much much bigger for a longer period of time but it's very hard to get what the fascination yeah. was yeah it's one of those in the moment things right there and then he was the right guy yeah and so but uh, another thing that was going on around this time that you talk a lot about is answer records. And and you bring up what was going on in country around this time because there was a classic case of a big hit record, which is Hank Thompson's Wild Side of Life, which right. includes the line, I didn't know God made honky-tonk angels. Kitty Wells answers it with, it wasn't God who made honky-tonk angels. Right. It's the men who make these women misbehave. And, you know, a pretty strong feminist statement. But then um, Hank Thompson's record is also strong. This whole movement towards, you know, a kind of gritty realism in country music where you're singing about drinking, about divorce, uh, about, you know, misbehaving, cheating on your your wife, um, cheating on your husband. You know, it's completely 
off the wall. Why would anybody want to sing about this? Well, because it sold records, and it sure did. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that's going on around this time is that artists like that are taking country and western into a very sophisticated adult direction, which creates a big opening for people like Elvis down the road to take the kids somewhere else. Right, exactly. Kids don't want to hear songs about, you know, I got drunk and cheated on my wife because what's that all about? Um, you know, your mom and dad are probably not doing that. And if they are, you sure don't want to tell anybody about it. It was, you know, just something. Well, it was the influence of Hank Williams and his, his personal statements. And then as it got further and further into everyday life, that's, that's what you, you still got plenty of, you know, fantasy songs and, and, and love songs in country. But these, these were the, this was the birth of honky tonk music, which uh, would become very much enthralled to electric guitars. Um, it would, it would be practiced beyond Nashville, which was, you know, the, the place that, where you had to be if you were going to do country music, unless you were from Texas, in which case Nashville didn't want to talk to you anyway. <laughs> and so the, the answer record thing is happening in a big way on the R&B side as well. And uh, there's a whole song cycle that a group called Hank Ballard and the Midnighters right. did this big, controversially dirty song Work With Annie. Me Annie. Work With Me Annie. Yeah, the Annie trilogy. There's actually four records. Um, but uh, Work, Work With Me Annie, you know, is has got some pretty loose moments in it. You know, give me all my meat. Hmm, what is that supposed to mean? She's, uh, maybe she's in the kitchen working, you think? Maybe not. But then, of course, the next record in the series is um, Annie Had a Baby, Can't Work No More. Every time we get to work and she has to take the baby, get up and walk the baby across the floor. You know, it's it's like having what you want, but being interrupted by the consequences. But the, I mean, you, you don't write about this for teenagers and the teenagers loved it. You know, this was what their parents had warned them about. Dirty records by colored people. You know, this is why you don't listen to that music. And yet they're just on a musical standpoint, they're, they're really good records. And then you get sexy ways, which, you know, doesn't have anything too explicit in it, but he does say, I love your mm, sexy ways. And then, of course, there's uh, Annie's Aunt Fanny uh, is the fourth of the trilogy, which nobody listened to, and it's not all that good. Yeah. But it, it was also um, one, of the, one of the great, brilliant marketing things that um, King Records did was they put... The, the Annie Trilogy plus Moonrise, which was the band's, uh, the group's first uh, single, out on an EP with two songs on each side. And those things were just flying under the counter in record stores. You know, you wouldn't want to put this on display, but it was certainly there to, um, to buy if you had the, I don't know, I guess EPs cost, I think, $2.00 which is twice as much as a regular, but then you're getting twice as many songs. Yeah, and that was a format, and this was a new format, the EP format. There was a change. Another dirty song on the old 78 format was Big 10-inch Record. Yeah, I, I mentioned that, that yeah, and because that, that really does play with the 
bad content, you know. She just loves my big 10-inch record of the band that plays the blues. And 10-inch um, records were disappearing. Uh, after the war, um, two things happened. Number one, um, high fidelity became a thing. Um, the um, 33 and one-third RPM 12-inch album was introduced by Columbia Records. And in fact, they tried to, I think they did uh, copyright the name, the, the term LP. Um, but the, the RCA, who was their dire competitor, came up with the 45, which they thought was a good medium for singles because they were smaller. They were seven inches instead of 10. And the sound was much, much, much better. And they could also sell RCA phonographs by making the hole in the middle of the record a different size. So you could play a 78 or, or a 33 uh, on a multi-speed turntable with the same center. But if you were going to play 45s, you had to uh, either buy an RCA unit or uh, get, um, get a special changer. Yeah, and eventually, they, you know, in a few years, a compromise was worked out where you could get record players that could play all the formats, right. including 78s for a long time. But this is one of the first format fights we're going to see in music technology yeah. and, and movie technology. You know, you can see it in the Betamax versus VHS in the 80s. You see it with MP3s and the iPod versus Microsoft Zune going on. So this is sort of a, a, a constant thing, and it's interesting to see it reflected in the music. But back to the answer records thing. You had a guy named Johnny Otis find a girl that he named Etta James that right. did an answer record to the Annie series. Right, Roll With Me Henry, or Dance With Me Henry, excuse me. And that was uh, released as The Wallflower. But um, it was actually pretty sweet and innocent uh, compared to the Hank Ballard tunes. But it, it announced, you know, she had a big voice and um, she was a pretty unusual woman. Yeah, and she's a teenage gonna, girl, actually. Yeah, she's a young girl. She's going to go on uh, to be cutting great records for another 20 years yeah. after this. And Johnny Otis is another interesting guy because you'd think he was black. I mean, he was a big player in the R&B world, but he was Greek. Right. John Veliotis from uh, Berkeley, California. He, um, I think he just got hooked on swing music and then moved to Los Angeles and then saw an underserved population in Watts. And, and he and a, a partner opened a club called The Barrel House. And um, he had his band that he played drums and, and vibes in. And um, they were the house band. And eventually Modern came calling and uh, Johnny was uh, talent scouting for them. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing you start to see and mostly you see it with Jewish writers and performers. Doc Pomus is another one that pops up that was a blues singer first and then became a songwriter for Big Joe Turner, who's still having hits in this period. Yeah. Some of them written by Doc Pomus on Atlantic Records. Right. Well, Doc Pomus, yeah, he was he was a really interesting interesting character. He, he had contracted polio as a teenager, and um, he performed on crutches. And he was a big hit with black audiences, but it, he didn't really have the stamina... Um, and he didn't really have the record company connections either to, to make it as a, uh, as a solo artist. So somehow he met this young kid, I guess through his sister, uh, who was a lot younger than he was, 
um, named uh, Mort Schumann. And there was one of the great songwriting partnerships right there. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about them more down the road, but probably the great songwriting partnership were another couple of Jewish kids who were fascinated with blues and R&B. And offline, we've talked a little bit about your uh, sequel to the History of Rock and Roll Part 1. And one of the themes you told me you're going to be exploring is the way fans come grow up and take over the music or right. attempt to take over the music. And you could argue that uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller were the first case of that. Um, Mike Stoller was um, performing with swing bands and um, not really liking the music he was, but, you know, he was getting paid. And um, one of the other guys in the band that he played with said, you know, you ought to meet this kid who works in this record store. I think you could uh, be a good songwriting partnership. Anyway, so he goes down to this record store, and here's this kid his own age, and uh, he's playing blues records on the on the PA. They started talking, and, uh, and I mean, Mike Stoller told me I really thought that this kid would be, you know, would come up with sentimental kind of ordinary pop stuff, but then when I saw what he was listening to, I realized, you know, that there weren't very many of us who, who listened to this stuff and who enjoyed it and who understood it. And so they started writing together. They wrote uh, Casey Lovin for uh, one of Johnny Otis's people, and that um, turned out to be a minor hit. Later, it became known as Going to Kansas City, um, but that was much later. And um, then, then Otis opened a bunch of doors for them. They, they went to New York and um, met the people who bought songs for uh, King Records and, and uh, uh, some other label it was had A and R guys out there in New York, and then they came back to Los Angeles, and uh, they they sold uh, Hound Dog. Um, to Big Mama Thornton. Big Mama Don Thornton Roby puts it out. Johnny Otis and his band back it right, up. Right, exactly. And um, they were so young that they had to have their parents um, sign for the royalty check which in the great Don Roby tradition bounced. <laughs> Very educational. Yeah, they, they learned right off. You know, here, here's something where there's at least several hundred dollars owed to them and, and the guy can't come up with it. So they 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 learned and um, it was great, you know, that they, they got it so early on because it made them sort of like teenage hit makers. Although they were older than most of the people they worked with, um, they did have a solid partnership. They did have a way of writing songs together that worked, and that's what counts. And I think for people uh, who aren't familiar with the original version of Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton, it's somewhat hard to find. There's, she did a, she re-recorded it several times, and those tend to drown it out. But find that original. It is such hot cooking R&B. And also, if you're familiar with the Elvis song, which everybody is, the Elvis song makes no sense. But the Lieber and Stoller song tells a story, and a hound dog is a guy who's looking to move in on a woman for food and shelter, right. not love. Right, exactly, just like a dog would do. You know, the dog's not going to contribute to your household, Yeah. necessarily. And, and he might go off and love another dog. Right, he might, yeah, looking. I mean, I had a dog who um, uh, I would let out at night, and he would come back, you know, about 40 minutes later. And one day I was walking him, because I'd walk him in the morning, and there was a house full of stewardesses down the hill from me, and one of them was getting off a shift, and, oh, I'm so happy that cute dog found a home. I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, he would come down here every night and, and uh, eat a bowl of dog food. I said, that's funny. He just finished a bowl of dog food at my house. That is a hound dog. 
that is exactly what she was thinking about. But, you know, Elvis's um, version came from Freddie Bell and the Bellboys, which was a Vegas novelty act that did supposed rock and roll. They're in a couple of the crappier um, rock exploitation movies that are basically just jukebox. Yeah. Um, little what became known as videos strung together by a paper thin plot and because you couldn't get Fats Domino to carry a whole movie you'd get people like Freddie Bell and the Bellboys in yeah, there. Yeah and I tried after we talked about him last week in the genesis of Elvis's version I tracked some of the videos down and you can see why they never did more. I mean right. they were just you know showbiz hacks. Yeah. They were in Vegas. And and went in Vegas, but but Elvis brought it out and made something wholly new about it. And there's a great story in Lieber and Stoller's autobiography, uh, Hound Dog, where they talk about one of them was coming back from Europe on a cruise when he hears that record, and they were both sort of appalled slash excited about the money, and and then go on to have a great partnership with Elvis. Well, for a while. Yeah. Uh, until until, until the, it. yeah. And uh, but back to the answer record theme because our friend Sam Phillips. Cuts an answer record to Hound Dog. Right. Called Bearcat. Bearcat, which was the same record with different words. But he he did a really smart thing without knowing that he'd done it in that he um, got Rufus Thomas to record it. Rufus Thomas was this insane show business character, really famous in the black community. Uh, he had a show on WDIA, the mother station of the Negroes, the first all not all black, white owned, but all black air staff, um, including some of the most prominent um, Memphians, black Memphians um, of the day. B.B. King. Yeah, and, and I'm trying to remember the guy who was um, a high school principal, and I won't remember his name, but he was the guy who was had two big aims in life. Number one, up uplift the race and number two learn to play an instrument because it's good for you to interact with other people and uh, if you can't do that learn to sing and he, he, he would host the uh, the big talent show the WDIA talent show every year but um, Rufus Thomas you know he was he came out of the rabbit foot minstrel show which you know Ma Rainey was in I mean he, he must have been performing since he was in his pre-teens. And he's uh, going to go on to perform. And, and he, he went on, you know, to the day he died, he was still making records. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's says a lot about the, his significance that he gets one of the first hits for Sun Records. Ten years later, he's going to get one of the first hits for Stax Records. Right. So this guy is a, is a big deal in Memphis music, but that wasn't the only thing Sam was up to. He also recorded a bunch of prisoners, the prisoners. Yeah, that that was a that was well. Since he had shown he could sell records locally, he um, he was approached by this guy um, who was from the country scene actually. But his brother, this guy's brother, was working at a penitentiary outside of, of um, Memphis, and and uh, these guys had had a. Um, a vocal group in there that was started out as a gospel group, but then they wrote this song, "Walking in the Rain," which was very much a Mills Brothers genteel uh, ballad. But they harmonized so beautifully that um, when Sam heard that, oh, fine. So they came in and, surrounded by guys with rifles, recorded the song. Uh, unfortunately, you can't tour much when you're doing life in prison, um, but they did do some dates in Tennessee. 
Um, but uh, eventually, yeah, eventually um, some of them got out. And I believe the lead singer uh, was the um, also the lead singer in the Magnolias, hmm. who did Little Darling. I had no idea. I had no idea. And, I, and whoever did the original of Good Lovin', too, I think that huh. was one of his groups. Huh. So he did pretty well. Yeah. Just not with the prison airs. <laughs> and another another uh, artist that Sam Phillips cut record on around this time uh, was Junior Parker, who cuts Mystery Train, which goes on to become... Right. Well, one of the, he's one of the Beale Streeters, uh, which was an informal group of guys, Johnny Ace, Bobby Blue Bland... Um, B.B. King. B.B. King and, um, and Junior Parker, uh, Herman Junior Parker, who um, he um, actually his first record was Feel So Bad, if I'm not mistaken. Feel like a, a ball game on a rainy day. What a great metaphor to come up with. And then, yeah, uh, Mystery Train was released as a B-side. Um, uh, but he, he was big in the boogie uh, kind of rhythm uh, Feel so good was the um, oh wait oh I'm now I'm all confused. Feel so bad is another artist entirely. Feel so good that's that was his ah. hit, you know. And um, he uh, I want a boogie. And then at, at, in the bridge he says you know nobody can boogie like the blue flames can, and uh, that was his his group backing him up, uh, which included Pat Hare who was one of the great stories of uh, Memphis music. Pat Hare eventually recorded a song called I'm Gonna Murder My Baby, um, and did. <laughs> ah, so his yes. career ended prematurely. Well, that'll, that'll happen. And there's always, in my mind, this sort of rivalry between Memphis and New Orleans as far as which is the, the bigger music city. And right around this time, Ray Charles is down in, in New Orleans, and Ray Charles... He's with Atlantic. He's cut the mess around, which was written by Amit Erdogan. And you talk a lot about how the session tapes show Amit was in there. You can tell Amit really did write he, that song. Right. He he taught him the song um, patiently, line by line. And you can hear that you know Ray's digging it. Yeah. It's like yeah okay yeah. And then, and, and he's playing the piano too. Hey, I can do it this way. Um, yeah. There were a couple of songs on that tape really wonderful to hear the the thing come into being yeah and the ray charles biopic uh from from about 10 years ago with jamie fox does a great job of telling that story yeah and i think uh the mess around is featured in planes trains and automobiles with john candy having a great time playing the piano while he's about to wreck the car air piano so that was a great song but it wasn't yet Ray Charles and full flower it wasn't the big hit it wasn't the new style they were looking for or that he would later find but he's down in New Orleans, still looking. Well, he's, no, he's on tour. I mean, because that that was something you had a hit record. You went out and toured. Yeah, but he meets a guy named Guitar Slim and cuts the record. He was asked to assemble. Uh, well, it was actually his band was all in town, and they wanted to get a, a record out on this guy, Eddie Jones, Guitar Slim, as quickly as possible because he was nuts. He was impossible to control. He, was, he had these... Jam-packed shows at the Do Drop In, um, where he would wear a bright red suit and uh, have a guitar with a really long cord on it, and he would walk through the audience and then out onto the sidewalk playing his guitar solo. He was a great guitar player when he wasn't too drunk. So um, they organized this session, 
to, uh, for uh, specialty records, and um, Ray said, "Okay, I can I can do the arrangement." It's not a, a particularly hard thing to do. It's a it's not a blues that song. It's a blues guitar, song. Yeah, some guitar playing, but right. it's a great record. And, and and you can hear Ray make a whoop just before the. Um, the last couple of notes on the record, he was probably very happy to have uh, finally gotten a, t a keeper. Uh, yeah, and and Guitar Slim's not the only sort of this neo-urban blues going around. B.B. King's cutting some great records around this time uh, out of Memphis, and also up in Chicago, you know, we've talked about Muddy Waters, but Helen Wolf is also cutting. Right. The minute he saw that he had a record on a Chicago label, he bought a Buick and an overcoat and headed north and abandoned his band. I mean, I think Junior Parker was one of the guys who was in that band. And, and the next day, the boss is gone. See ya. I mean, Wolf sold his farm over in Arkansas. He had plenty of cash. He went up there, walked into the chess office and says, here I am. Yeah, because Sam Phillips had been cutting him in Memphis and selling the records to Chess. And, of course, he assembles a great band around him with Hubert Sumlin. Well, they, they were just, you know, the streets were crawling with bluesmen up in Chicago. And, and there wasn't as much competition for a good band as there was in, uh, in Memphis. I'm, I'm sure one of the reasons Wolf just abandoned his, his band was because he knew he could get another one. Yeah, and, and he certainly did. And... Um, the whole uh, blues revival, I don't know, urban blues, electric blues right. thing is an undercurrent. And you talked about, we talked about Muddy Waters before about how he wasn't on the Chitlin circuit, but he was having hit records. Right. And sort of a similar story with Helen Wolf, although they, Helen, not Wolf, but Muddy ends up on some of Alan Freed's package shows. Yeah. It was because he was with Chess and, and Freed had a good, uh, good relationship with the Chess Boys. And Freed's package shows become a big deal, and Freed moves to New York, and all this attention he's getting and audience he's building, and people start to notice that white kids are listening to this stuff right? and suddenly begin to be concerned about these dirty records they didn't care about when they thought it was just for black people. Uh, and he was calling it rock and roll, which has certain connotations if you think about it hard enough. <laughs> hard enough, <laughs> yes. And some people thought very hard about it. But we mentioned Big Joe Turner and Doc Palmas, but we didn't talk about the big hit that, that Joe Turner had around this time, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which right. is a very dirty song. In it is. In, in the original version, you know, you wear those dresses, the sun comes shining through. Yeah, that's a potently erotic image, as is the idea of a one-eyed cat peeping in a seafood store. Yes, really dirty stuff. And a great record. And all the Big Joe Turner stuff is really fun. And it's amazing to me that this guy was already in his 40s or 50s at this point. 46 when he cut Shake, Rattle, and Roll. Yeah, and you cannot hear the age on him. Well, yeah, even later. I mean, I, I saw him in his later years when he couldn't even stand up to perform sitting on a, on a chair and uh, just sitting there with a microphone in front of his face. And he was still as powerful as ever. I mean, I, I, I took my girlfriend at the time who... Um, had never heard him, and she was just blown away. Yeah. Said, Why doesn't he ever come to Austin? Mm. <laughs> I, I met him on that trip. He, he, his doctor had told him he should exercise, so he, had, he was on crutches. And he lived in my friend Brian's building, 
And uh, so I was hanging out with Brian and uh, we're coming back from somewhere. And, he, and here's Big Joe on the sidewalk going back and forth and back and forth. And he says, hey, you want to meet Big Joe Turner? I said, sure. So um, he introduced us. I said, it's a great privilege to meet you. And Big Joe said, yes, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well-earned pride in his own accomplishments. And Big Joe had a big R&B hit, and I'm sure a lot of white kids heard the original, but somebody else had the big pop hit with that, and that was a Bill Haley who's playing around with uh, sort of a swing country band. He had a Western swing band in, in Pennsylvania. Speaking of guys who are older, I mean, he, he was... Uh, Younger than Big Joe, but not by that much, maybe 10 years. And uh, he'd been around for a long time uh, playing country music in Pennsylvania where it was popular. Uh, you know, probably any venue that he played would also have a polka band on other days of the week. But um, he, um, he did this kind of Western swing stuff. And so when he first heard this uh, rhythm and blues I think he recognized a, a common thing at the bottom of it. But the thing is, he, he was like overweight and not real sexy. And uh, he, he was not Elvis, you know, and, and I think he kind of wanted to be, uh, who knows? I mean, Haley is a very strange guy. And uh, he, he did record Shake, Rattle and Roll after he cleaned it up. Yeah, cleaned up the lyrics a little bit, but still keeps a... I mean, it's not Pat Boone we're talking about. No. Bill Haley's version of Shake, Rattle, and Roll rocks. Yeah. And so... And well, that's course, because of the, the Western Swing that his band already knew how to play. He played them the record, and they went, okay, we can do that. Yeah, and uh, we didn't talk about Western Swing as much in the early episodes when we were covering that period, and I've been thinking about that. At first, I was... You know, I've got to... I read your books, and I, and I always think, oh, I, I'm, I've got this point to make with Ed. And then I get here, and it's very hard, you know, and you bat it aside or whatever. But, you know, I was thinking that you were pushing Muddy Waters too much in the blues rather than jump blues or swing as the real primary branch of the rock and roll roots. But after listening to a bunch of Count Basie in the last couple of weeks and a bunch of Bob Wills, Western Swing has a lot more of the two and the four beat than, than Count Basie Swing. Basie tends to be keeping the beat on the hi-hat, mm -hmm. and it swings more. But Bob Wills and that Western swing, and it's to me, it's got to be the polka influence and in all the Germans in Texas. Yeah, and, and it's also the um, the melody and the fact that the solos are largely carried by virtuoso fiddle players in the Bob Wills band. And a little bit of steel guitar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When, when they finally got that figured out. But um, by the 1950s, Western Swing was played out. I mean, Bob Wills was basically killed by the Second World War because he couldn't uh, travel with a band that big. Tommy Duncan, his, his great lead singer, joined the Army, you know, just walked out of the band and into the Army. And um, then, of course, there was the recording band. So everything sort of conspired against him. The only um, Western Swing artist who was able to keep his popularity um, was Hank Thompson, who you mentioned earlier, and he did that by recording half straight country and, and half Western Swing. The Western Swing stuff was definitely there in his performances, and um, yet it wasn't uh, emphasized in his records. Yeah, and I think, I think, you know, when you mentioned Bill Haley having a Western Swing band, I definitely think that's the reason he adapted to R&B 
so well and mm -hmm. was one of the inventors of rock and roll. And Bill Haley's a weird cat because you dive into his discography and there's an easy 60 to 90 minutes of great stuff in there. And then there's a lot of not as great. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating with the 60 well, to 90 minutes. Maybe it's 30 to 45 minutes of great stuff. He, he you know, he lost popularity so fast that I think he just lost hope. And, and you know, Decca kept him on as long as they could. But I think by about 1960, they let him go, too. So he moved to Harlingen and started drinking. Yeah, and he's one of these performers. It reminds me of, you know, the controversy about Hillary Clinton's campaigns and her manager coming out and saying, look, the reason we didn't go to Wisconsin is every time we went to Wisconsin, our numbers dropped. Bill Haley was in a similar boat. He goes to England, a big star for his big tour. By the end of the tour, his career is basically dead. Right. And that, you know, he was wall-eyed, old, fat. His band's wearing checkered uh, jackets and bow ties and just looking as square as possible. Jerry Lewis does a great impression of Bill Haley that's hilarious if you can find it. And I'll put it on the playlist because it's Jerry Lewis's infamous enemy of rock and roll. But he does this parody of Bill Haley that's pretty funny. But Bill Haley serves as functionist or the John the Baptist of rock and roll. And Elvis is out there waiting. And around this time, Sam Phillips meets Scotty Moore. Who has a, uh, a country band, but who wants to be a jazz guitarist. Uh, completely self-taught. And um, he's just looking for something to do. And he and Sam hit it off kind of intellectually. And have these long discussions over at the coffee shop next door to 706 Union. And uh, so... Eventually, Sam says, well, you know, I've got this kid that I, I I think he's good, but I can't seem to do anything with him. And so um, Scotty Moore, I think it was his next door neighbor, was um, Bill Black, the uh, bass player. He says, well, let's go down Memphis Recording Service and meet this kid and see what we can do. And so they just kind of, you know, played around. Sam had a song that he definitely wanted Elvis to do, and they just couldn't make it work. And um, at one point, um, Elvis started goofing away uh, on That's All Right Mama, which was a song that had gotten a lot of local airplay uh, by Arthur Big Boy Crudup. And uh, so, you know, the bass player and the guitar player jumped in too. And um, they were just goofing, you know, taking time off maybe so that they could rethink this dog that uh, Sam wanted them to record it. All of a sudden, Sam is going, whoa, 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 hang on. What are you doing? And and they said, well, I don't know. He said, well, don't lose it. I'm going to run some tape. And yeah. he did. And there was Elvis's first record. And it was this, you know, it was a blues song played by country musicians. And it took them a few weeks to come up with a B-side. Um, and there they, they did the opposite. They took a waltz, a bluegrass waltz, by um, Bill Monroe, and um, they turned it into an R&B song as a goof. Yeah, they put it in 4-4 four, four time, much like the birds are later going to do with Mr. Tambourine Man and right. Bob Dylan, um, except going from waltz to 4-4. Four, four. And that is the perfect pairing, you know, for Elvis's opening record. It's it's They weren't thinking in terms of statements, but this was a statement. Right. It was black, a black song done white, white song done black. They put it out on on a record, and, and uh, Sam went to Dewey Phillips, and um, there it was. Dewey Phillips was not related to Sam Phillips, but he was 
a madman DJ. There's a bunch of recordings and air checks of him doing a beer commercial. Oh, brother, that one is bizarre. Well, you know, he, he was just a wild man. And he loved black music. Um, he didn't much like local black music, but he, you know, he'd play stuff that was that was good to him. He really had, he was on late and um, nobody was worried about ratings in those days. And he, he was just like our beloved eccentric. And uh, a certain, I, we spoke, I think, about the cat um, culture in Memphis and the cats really loved him. <coughs> and Dewey takes that record and puts it on the air. Right. And the phones light up and the rest is history. Right. Elvis's parent, he, well, the, Sam told Elvis that he was going to, that Dewey was going to play the record that night. So Elvis turns on the radio to the station and exits the house as quickly as he can and uh, goes to the movies. So he's sitting in the, this half-deserted movie theater when um, his mother hears his name on the radio. And um, they, uh, she, she, she said she, she didn't even actually hear the record. She was so shocked to hear the words Elvis Presley come across the radio. So eventually she and her husband Vernon went down to the um, movie theater, pulled Elvis out of the audience, marched him down to the radio station, and uh, Elvis got interviewed. And, and the very first question that Dewey asked him was what high school he went to, and he said Cullum, which was important because this was still segregation, and he wanted the name of a white high school out there so everybody would know that this weird person he was playing on the radio was actually white. And um, then um, he interviewed him, and uh, I thought that was a good story where he also, well, I've never been interviewed before, and Dewey goes, this don't say nothing dirty. <laughs> and, and has this little interview with him, and, and Elvis goes, so uh, when are we going to do the interviews? Says, I've had the mic open the whole time. Yep. And it was, you know, pandemonium in <laughs> high school days. And, uh, oh, actually, Elvis already had graduated and had a job uh, as a truck driver for an elect electrician. And, and he moves on. And right around this time, there's a black guy in St. Louis who's doing something the opposite but coming to a similar goal chuck berry's playing he starts doing country songs like ida red and getting big audience responses the pianist well it, he had he had a country act see he he was in um jimmy johnston's band at this uh, club i think called the carousel and um they were they were really big because they did blues johnson was a fantastic blues piano player and um so as sort of comic relief, um, Chuck, the guitar player, would sing country. And uh, one night, Muddy Waters was in the audience. And um, when he got back to Chicago, he told the Chess Boys that uh, he'd seen this guitarist who played guitar like nothing he'd ever seen before. And um, they ought to look into it because Muddy knew this is no competition. We're doing completely different things. And he wasn't known for his generosity to other musicians unless he was trying to steal them away from another another band. So um, Chuck Berry went up to Chicago and uh, auditioned for the Chess Brothers playing Ida Red, which is a 
Western Swing song has been recorded by all kinds of people. I think uh, Jack Guthrie, uh, Woody Guthrie's brother, had the current cousin. Cur- cousin? Yeah. Uh, he had the, he had the current hit with it, and uh, although it may have been Hawkshaw Hawkins, I, I've never really figured out exactly which version he was trying to do. But uh, they liked it, but they also knew about music publishing. They suggested that he change the title. And and a few of the lyrics, and it becomes Maybelline, right. and it's a huge hit. Yeah. A complete game changer. Well, because nobody, like Muddy, nobody had ever heard anything like it. Yeah. And uh, Alan Freed gets to put his name on it, so he gets a little bit. And uh, Chuck Berry was just happy, you know? He, he made a record. Yeah, and, and, you know, I keep trying to challenge you on what's the first rock and roll record, but you cannot argue that Maybelline is a rock and roll record. This is absolutely rock and roll. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, playing the game of what was first makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't clarify anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's like, you know, it's your opinion. It's somebody's opinion. No, there's no question that um, Chuck Berry was the first rock and roll star um, just because his music was came from somewhere else. And he was a prolific songwriter. He, he, uh, he'd always wanted to write songs uh, as a um, in, in the form of uh, of Louis Jordan, who had fast, he delivered lyrics. He didn't sing necessarily on his records, but he did talk real fast. And um, Louis Jordan was a mammoth record seller in the '30s and even after the war, uh, all through the early '50s, he was he was still making great records. So who wouldn't want to be him? You know, he's a guy who got to record with Bing Crosby. And Who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, and Chuck Berry uh, forges his own path, adds a little bit of T-Bone Walker in the guitar style, and and off he goes. But one one last guy I want to talk about on this episode. Here's what's going on at Sun Records. Here's what Elvis is doing. Carl Perkins drives down and introduces himself. Right. Phillips. He he um he heard Elvis's records and and he said, well, we do that because he and his brothers um, in Arkansas. I believe they, they had grown up um, in a sort of sharecroppers collection of buildings. You know, you can't call it a, <clears throat> a village or anything. It was just, you know, the sharecroppers part of the farm. And some of them were black and some of them were white. And, you know, they, they were so poor, they never thought about that. And uh, so somebody had a radio and everybody would listen to the Grand Ole Opry and they'd, they'd listen to WDIA probably, you know, and it all just sort of melded together. So when the boys decided that they were going to um, get their way out of poverty by starting to play in bars, plus you could get free drinks, which was very important to them, um, they started performing stuff like this. And, and they, they were really, really widely liked in the area. So he hears his record, he goes, well, that's what we're doing. And he goes down and starts pestering Sam Phillips, who uh, really does not need to be pestered because Elvis was taking off big time and he had his hands full just trying to make sure he could pay to press enough Elvis Presley records. And so, and there were all kinds of people undoubtedly coming into, you know, Sun Records, which was what it was called now. It wasn't the Memphis Recording Service anymore and they wanted to make records who wouldn't and and carl perkins uh, introduces himself the first record they cut is a uh, movie mag right which it's 
not quite blue suede shoes, but it's in the neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's sort of rocky, but uh, Sam was really looking for a country performer. Yeah. So he had Carl do country, and you know Carl does country well, but he doesn't do it as well as he does Carl. No, no. <laughs> and and one last go back. I want to go back to Ray Charles before we wrap this up. Around this time, Ray Charles finally crystallizes his style with a number called I Got a Woman, bringing gospel onto the pop chart. I Gotta Save Your Way Across Jordan, He's Good to Me. That That's an old gospel song that's, you know, you're, you're always looking for something that'll get the sisters shouting, you know, getting them to rock it up out of their seats and, and start dancing around the the uh, audience. And, and that was a proven, you know, house record, as they call them. And uh, so he just did I Got a Woman Way Across Town, She's Good to Me. And yeah, he, he, it, there was no great um, songwriting involved there. He he just made it secular, and he kept in a lot of the, the kind of woo kind of things that you know gospel singers do. And um, it, he made a gospel record about a girl. Yeah, and it's it's brilliant. In between what Ray's doing, what Chuck Berry's doing, and Elvis coming into focus, this is a water watershed year. Yep, this is this is setting the scene for what's going to happen soon and we'll talk about that next time thanks for listening there was so much going on musically in 53 and 54 that this week's episode was less about the big picture stuff and more about all the incredible talent that was surfacing at the time come back next week when we'll be discussing the first commercial impact of the baby boom generation on the music as well as hearing the story of how chuck berry rewrote a western swing classic to create one of the first rock and roll songs be sure and check out our website, LetItRollPodcast.com, where you can access the Spotify and YouTube playlist we've curated so you can listen to the music we've been discussing. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.